After the first of the year, Pastor Larry laid out a vision for the next year that we as a church would pray for and seek revival. And he said was, what he said was not shocking because a lot of pastors and people will say, yes, we want revival, we want revival. But they might not really know what they're looking and asking for. And before I go farther, I'll say, I'm sure Pastor Larry knows exactly what he's looking for and asking for and expecting. Um, but when he said that, I began thinking about what revival really means for me in the church. And I was a little bit, you know, a little bit reserved on it. Elmer Towns and Douglas Porter wrote a book concerning uh, revivals. And this is what they said about revival. An evangelical revival is an extraordinary work of God in which Christians repent of their sins as they become intensely aware of His presence and His extraordinary works, and they manifest a positive response to God in renewed obedience to the known will of God, resulting in both a deepening of their individual and corporate experience with God and an increased concern to win others for Christ. Just in case you didn't know what we are praying for, this is basically it. This is a, this is a definition of revival. Elmer Towns also wrote this, when most people pray for revival, they're probably asking for a wonderful experience at church next Sunday at 11 a.m. But revival is more than a Sunday morning experience. When you pray for revival, you're asking God for life-shaking experiences that will cost you plenty. It's agonizing because in revival, you become terrorized over your sin and you repent deeply. It's consuming because in revival you have no time for hobbies, for chores around the house, for work, for sleep. Revival crashes your schedule, interrupts TV times, demands your full attention, and wears you out. And usually when we pray for revival, we're telling God, sick them on the bad guys. Little do we realize that revival begins with us, the people of God. Now, I didn't quite put it like that in my mind when uh, Larry talked about us seeking revival as a church. Um, but I do realize that when we get serious about seeking the Lord in our lives, that it's going to mess things up a bit, you know? Because we're pretty comfortable with our lives. So when the subject came up, between uh, Colleen and I after service or sometime during that week, I shared my thoughts on what real revival looks like and if people would really want revival in the church. Of course, being my wife, what she did was look at me and ask, do you want revival? I hate it when she does that. <laughs> I really do. I was reading something else in a book not long after that, and I read her this really good portion. And you know what she said when we got done? Have you done that, she said? I said, stop it! I'm not going to read you anything else because you keep on pointing it back at me. Do you want revival? It wasn't a question that I wanted to answer. Now, the proper answer is, yes, of course I want revival. Because how can you call yourself a Christian and honestly answer that question any other way? But her question to me really came from the Spirit of God. And I couldn't shake it. 
the question kept resonating in my mind, do you want revival? Then about six weeks ago, a pastor asked me to do something else for him related to one of his classes. He wanted a 10-minute video from me explaining my denominational background and what it was like being raised in that movement. Oh, I, oh, and I could have done it. Oh, he says, oh, and can you have it done in the next week or two? And I smiled and said, okay, sure. So over the next couple of weeks in my spare time, I delivered, I, fi- I worked it up and I delivered to him the video that he asked for and Elizabeth edited it for him. Now in doing that, I was in a sense reconnected to my roots not just from the standpoint of the factual refreshing of my mind from a theological and historical basis, but I found myself remembering and reliving some aspects of my childhood and youth years. Because in my childhood, I can remember the adults and the teenagers staying after church and praying and seeking God on their knees, on their faces, And that's a memory that I still have today from my childhood. And it wasn't a rare thing. It happened regularly. When I was 13 years old, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I can remember also all the times that I was involved in prayer meetings after church that lasted for hours, getting home sometimes after midnight, seeking God, calling on Him, looking for direction. And enjoying his presence. When I finished that little project for Larry, I got on my knees and I said, Yes, Lord, I want revival. Now, Second Chronicles seven fourteen is the classic scripture that we usually use when we talk about turning to God and seeking his face. Many can quote it from memory. Jim quoted it in his prayer this morning. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now God spoke this to Solomon after the dedication of the temple. And the verse prior to it, he talks about sending calamities upon the Jewish people, the Israelites, if they were to sin and become apostate, turn from him and worship idols. And when he would send these calamities, he said, if my people will do this, then this will happen. Now, we are not Jewish. I don't know. There could be some people who are Jewish here this morning. I don't know, but I know I'm not. And uh, yet, as believers, we are grafted into the Abrahamic tree. As believers, by faith, we are God's people. We are the body of Christ. And so we are his people. Even though this is speaking to the Jews, we are his people as well. Now, let's just take this step by step. Because this has the points, this has the road that we must take to revival. If my people who are called by my name, how did I get there already? Okay. If my people who are called by my name 
In this designation, God is referring to those who are genetically descended from Abraham through Jacob. These are the Israelites, the chosen people. These are the people that he redeemed from slavery in Egypt. These are the people he brought through the Red Sea. These are the people who stood below the mountain and experienced the presence of God and heard his voice speak the Ten Commandments. These are the people he gave victory after victory as they conquered the promised land. And these are the ones he's speaking to here. Second, will humble themselves and pray. The only way that we can come to God is in humility. There is no room for self-exaltation or even self-preservation in the presence of God. We must come to God how he wants and expects us to come to him. James chapter 4 verse 6 and 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 5 and 6 both say the same thing. James 4, 6. But he gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. In the same way, you younger men be subject to the elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. If you want to pray without humility, without humbling yourself before God, then you are asked, asking to be ignored, to be resisted. Because God does not respond to pride. Humility is the only way that we can come. We don't come to God and bargain or lay out our terms. We come to God with nothing in our hands that he needs. And I don't know about you, but I need more grace. I need it abundantly. The next phrase is, and seek my face. This is singleness of purpose. If we choose to seek the face of God, then we need to get our eyes off everything else. If God is worth seeking, then nothing else can be allowed to compete. When we pray, we can't have our cell phone laying next to us because every little jiggle, vibration, or noise it makes, we're going to think there's something really important that we need to pay attention to. And that is not what we need to be doing when we're seeking the Lord. Prayer is important. Communing with God is important. Hearing his voice is important. Nothing in this world is as important as those things. Whatever might get our attention or call to us instead of just are just distractions that Satan uses to keep us from close contact with God. Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13 says, you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Psalm 27, 7 and 8. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. You are to seek my face. Lord, I will seek your face. Can there be anything more important in this life 
than seeking the face of God? The obvious answer is no, and yet there are many, many things that we allow to be prioritized ahead of him. When is there time to seek the Lord? At what point in our day or week can we prioritize getting serious with the Lord? See, unfortunately, it's often when we're in deep distress that we finally fall on our knees and cry out to him and get serious with God. Is it any wonder that we are allowed to go through trials? Because that's what gets us on our face before the Lord and seeking him. But God wants us to come to him when we aren't in distress or trouble. God wants us to seek him at all times. And turn from their wicked ways. I want you to listen to this. Ready? No revival comes until the church has repented of sin. No revival comes until the church has repented of sin. William W. Castles was the Anglican Bishop of Sichuan, China in the early 1900s. He was a famous missionary. He was one of the Cambridge Seven. These seven young men were all saved in a D.L. Moody campaign at Cambridge University. And these seven men came from the upper class and they all committed to go to the mission field and work with Hudson Taylor's organization. And it was a famous thing because these guys were upper class. And they did a tour of Britain before they left talking about preaching and calling other people to give their lives to missions, lives to missions. Dub, William W. Castles was the, became the bishop of the Szechuan area. And after revival had come to his region, he said this, he described it in five words. It is like judgment day. J. Edwin Orr said this. I heard this in a sermon he preached the day before he died. A lot of people think that revival is a tremendous time of excitement and a great roll call of converts and so forth. It begins like Judgment Day, with the Holy Spirit exposing all the sins of the church. Now this is something we don't realize, that the first stage in revival, of revival, after the prayer, is conviction of sin. That the Holy Spirit would convict men and women of their sin is no big surprise because that's what he does. That's, one of the, that's the description of his work in John. However, this relates to the church, not to the uncommitted. This, this shouldn't surprise us in the least because the New Testament writers were often writing to the churches telling them to abstain from sin of all kinds. There was immorality and there was all kinds of wicked stuff that they were warning the churches not to be part of. But he also warned them not to be gossiping, not to be causing dissent. Not as serious a thing seemingly in our eyes. But that were the warning. That, those were the warnings. So is sin a problem for mankind? Absolutely. Men and women are lost in sin. It's what separated us from God since the Garden of Eden. Sin creates a chasm between us and God that's greater than a thousand Grand Canyons. 
Jesus came to bridge that chasm so that we could have a relationship with God. And when we receive salvation from sin, sin through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, our sins are forgiven. So sin is a big problem for mankind, but is sin a problem for Christians? Yes, it is. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, we like to use these verses and say, well, this is written for people who don't know Christ. No. John was writing this to believers. This was written to the church. If we say we don't have sin, then we're deceiving ourselves. And not only that, but it says we're calling him a liar. Sin continues to be an issue that we deal with as long as we live. Now, what is sin? Erdman's Bible Dictionary says it like this. In essence, the failure or refusal of human beings to live the life intended for them by God, their creator. God intends for us to live a life devoted to a relationship with him and committed to righteousness. God is holy and his people must also be holy. Now, I don't think that most people who have honestly surrendered their lives are dealing with the same kind of sins that they dealt with before they were born again, okay? But it doesn't mean there is not sin. The Ten Commandments may not be directly related to what we're guilty of as Christians, but it doesn't mean that we don't sin. The greatest sins of man are not those which are obvious to all. They are the sins of the heart, which are often overlooked, unrecognized, or rationalized away. The list of the seven deadly sins begins with pride. The sin which caused Lucifer to fall from heaven was pride. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, that describes his fall, he used, he used the words, I will, five times. I will, I will, showing the pride of Lucifer. The great wrath of Satan is caused by his failure to accomplish that which was birthed in his pride. Again, J. Edwin Orr from his book, Full Surrender. Most Christians are startled when they learn that the sins of the Spirit are a far greater hindrance to spiritual revival than the sins of the flesh. This contrast can be seen in the attitude of our Lord, who was doubly lenient with the woman taken in adultery and trebly severe with the pride of the Pharisee. This does not mean that adultery is less culpable than pride, but rather that the one who gives way to pride is harder to help than the one who gives way to adultery. Sins are not just obvious actions. They are matters of the heart and the mind. Jesus pointed this out in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about anger and lust in the same equation with murder and adultery. Remember, God isn't limited to seeing what we do. He sees what we think, what we desire, and what we crave. The secret places of our heart and mind are where our real sin resides. We can rationalize it and think that it isn't really a problem at all, but God knows. And when we resist the Spirit's voice, 
he will resist us. Since that day that I prayed and told the Lord that I wanted revival, the Holy Spirit has been convicting me of sin. Some things that I have just ignored, considered no big deal at all, have been illuminated by the Spirit as things that needed to be repented of, confessed, and asked forgiveness for. That was what I was afraid of when I prayed that prayer. Lord, I want revival. Oh man, here it comes. First step was when I was driving home from work one day, and all of a sudden this thing came to mind that happened years and years and years ago. I hadn't done anything wrong. Nothing that I, nothing that I had done wrong, except that I had not addressed it. And I, and I just kind of explained it away. No, 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 I didn't do anything wrong. I don't have to do da, da, da. Over the years, I, I just, every now and then, pop up in my mind, and I think, no, 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 that's not God. That's, that's got to be the devil bringing that up to me. But then the other day, coming home from work, this thing hit me, just like that. And something said, go do it now. And my hand was doing this on the steering wheel. And it was hard, but I turned it to go home instead. And when I got home, I went into my room. And I got on my knees and said, Lord, you can't. This can't be you. You cannot be asking me to do this. This will be humiliating. It's embarrassing, Lord. This is, it was not a big deal. And yet, I knew this was God. So less than an hour later, I was back in my car to go and take care of this thing. That was the beginning. And the Lord has been bringing up things like this in my life. Things that I've just passed over. Oh, it's not, you know, everybody's like that, whatever. Let me just say this, it's not been a pleasant process. It's not been a pleasant process at all. But I wouldn't give up the last two, three weeks for anything. Because when sin is confessed, then there's cleansing and freedom. If you've got any secret stuff in your life that God is dealing with you about, get it out and take it care of. Because then you'll be free. Hidden stuff in your life always has a hold on you. Always has some power over you. So the Holy Spirit's been working on me to prepare me for revival. And if not corporately with the church, in my own heart at least. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and we heal their land. After humility, after prayer, after seeking his face, and after repentance, then the answers come. And healing takes place. After these steps, we can hope for and even expect God to do amazing things among us, but we cannot circumvent these steps. We would like to skip right from the beginning to the end. If my people, then I will heal their land, and so on and so forth. 
It doesn't work like that. So I ask you today, what do you want God to do in your life? This is a serious question, not a rhetorical one. What do you want God to do in your life? Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you need to be healed inwardly of past hurts and struggles? Do you want God to use you to bring your friends and family to Christ? Do you want to know without a doubt that your sins are forgiven and you're a child of God? Do you want to know deep down in your heart that God really loves you? See, the, the, the answers to this question for, can be as many as the number of people in here. What do you want God to do in your life? Because whatever it is you need God to do in your life, it comes through these steps first. Humble yourself before God. Pray and seek his face. And repent of all known sin. And ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any sin that hinders your relationship with him. When we do these things, then we're prepared to receive what God has for us. Now, the most effective prayer a person who is hungry for God can pray is this prayer of David in Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, J. Edwin Orr, I mentioned him a couple of times. He was a Baptist minister who was an evangelist in the uh, early 30s, served as a chaplain during World War II, and after that, he went back to school, and he picked up several doctorates on revival. He led revivals as an evangelist, and then he became the world's foremost expert on the history of revivals and what God, how God does this thing, okay? He reported that he didn't fully comprehend the depth of this entreaty of David. Search me, God, and know my heart. Until he heard the verse translated into a Scandinavian language when he was there preaching some, some messages, uh, some campaigns. And in the language that the word was translated, that we see search in that Scandinavian language, he doesn't name which one it is. It was translated ransack. Now I'm sure that you can recall some movie or TV show that you watched in which somebody's searching for something in somebody's house, you know? Now if it's the good guy, they go in with a flashlight like this. And they look very carefully, and they open a couple things carefully so nobody knows they were there. And, and lo and behold, they always find what they're looking for very easily. The bad guys, on the other hand, they go in and tear the place apart. They ransack the rooms. They turn the furniture over. They dump out the drawers. Nothing is left hidden and still, somehow, they never seem to find what it is they're looking for. That's ransacking. Ransack my heart, O oh God. 
ransack it. Tear it apart. Find if there's any offensive way in me. Forgive my sins. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Do you know what all this points to for anyone who wants a life that's punctuated by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? Full surrender. No terms. Full surrender. No compromise. Full surrender. Part of the humbling process is giving up ourselves. What do we hold on to that God wants us to let go of? What things of this world do we cherish that are temporary, that won't last and aren't eternal? What are those things that we need to release and surrender to have the Holy Spirit revival in our hearts? Again, this will be different for each of us, but what are you holding on to that's a temporary thing that God wants you to let go of and surrender to Him? in order to show that your life is fully surrendered. Holding back on God or from God is sin. When God wants us to turn from something that we don't want to turn from, we are refusing God. We're resisting Him. We're resisting the Holy Spirit and we'll bear the consequence of God then resisting us and not heeding our prayer. The only position for us to be in is full surrender. Matthew 16, 24 Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is humility. This is full surrender. Denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following him. If we want to be his disciple, this is it. This is the cost. Denying self. Humility, repentance, Seeking God and full surrender. So let me ask you today, as my wife asked me, do you want revival? Do you want revival? I pray that the Holy Spirit will drive this question and nag you with it like he nagged me. Do you want revival? You see, in order for Harvest Fellowship to have revival, a whole lot of us will first have to have individual revival. It will start in me and you. Revival has always started with the obedience of a few individuals. People will open their hearts to God to be convicted, cleansed, and filled with the Holy Spirit. People who will sincerely seek a deeper and more personal relationship with Him. People who will pray for a move of the Holy Spirit in their church and their city. Will you be one of them? I know the most of this congregation has been born again. And this message is for you. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've given your life to Him, this is for you. However, I want to talk because in every church, there's a few people who are still kind of holding back. Maybe you're playing church. Maybe you haven't made a decision to surrender your life to God. And you just kind of holding out. Let me just say a few things. Your sin is real. You've either relied on religious sacraments to deal with it. You've tried to improve yourself to be good enough. 
or you've just lived with your sin and accepted it. It's a burden that you can't get rid of, and your sin hangs around your neck like the chains and weights around Jacob Marley's neck in a Christmas neck in a Christmas carol. Maybe you've tried to get rid of your burden, or maybe you haven't. But your sin is part of you. And I want to state this directly. Your sin keeps you from fellowship with God. It keeps you from having peace in your heart and mind. It keeps you from experiencing true, lasting joy and happiness. Because you are created to have a relationship with God. That's your purpose. And if you're created for that purpose and you aren't in that relationship, there is an emptiness There's something that's not being fulfilled in your life that never can be. You'll constantly be looking for answers someplace else and satisfaction from something that cannot satisfy your soul. As long as your sin hangs around your neck, you can't have the peace in your heart and mind that God gives. You can't have the lasting joy and happiness that God gives. Because God loves you, and yes, that's right, God does love you. That's one of the things that's so amazing that blows my mind. God loves me. I don't know how. I really don't. How can God love me? But he loves us. He loves you. He chose to take the penalty for your son and place it on your sin and place it on Jesus, his son. And Jesus died on the cross shedding his sinless blood for your sin. in order for you to be forgiven and made clean. Jesus died in your place and took your sins. And because of that, you can have a relationship with God, the relationship that he designed you for. Sounds too good to be true. It always has sounded too good to be true. But there is one catch. You see, I'm not one of those people who will say, oh, salvation is free. Here, you can have it. Da-da-da. Guess what? It is free. There's nothing you can give that could pay for it. Nothing that you could ever do that would deserve it. Nothing. However, if you want forgiveness of sin, if you want a relationship with God, you have to give up yourself. Total surrender. Some people get to the point where they're just so sick of their life, it's easy. They cast off say, Lord, I hate my life here. You take it. Not everybody's in that place. But that's what you have to do. You have to give up yourself. You have to surrender your life, surrender your sin, surrender everything in order to receive this gift of peace, of joy, happiness, and eternal life. And there is no other way. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can try any other direction you want to, but there is no other way. Jesus is the only way to get eternal life. The only way to God. Peter said this before the Sanhedrin. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. So the offer is on the table, forgiveness and eternal life in heaven with God in exchange for your life and sin. 
Your alternative is continuing in your life bearing responsibility for your own sin and being judged for it. And understand this, God doesn't judge on the curve, okay? He doesn't judge on the curve. Any sin at all in your life and you are disqualified from heaven. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. With that in mind, what good reason do you have for not accepting God's offer? What good reason could you have? What possible good reason could you have for putting off a decision that has to be made in order to save your life for eternity? He wants you to repent of your sin today. Turn from your life and receive Christ your Savior Lord today and He'll make you a new creature and provide you with what you cannot get any other way. So I want to say to you today, do not put it off. Today is the day of salvation. It makes no sense to not do it. it. makes no sense to not make that decision. The worship team is going to come now. I just want you to remain in your seats. Don't stand up. You're not going to sing. I want you to bow your heads, make your seat your altar, and I want you to ask yourself the question again, do I want revival? Because it's going to cost you. But if you say no, it'll cost you more. Do I want revival? Just bow your heads. Talk to the Lord as they play.